please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 1. Genesis 1. And uh, if you need a Bible this morning, just lift up your hand and we will get one over to you so you can follow along that way. Or if you choose, you can follow along on the screen as well. Genesis chapter 1. And we're going to start at verse 26 and read on down through the end of the chapter. Moses writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth. And every tree with seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Let's pray. Father, I pray that the same voice that spoke and the universe leapt into existence would speak to us this morning through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good morning. I assume that most of you were like myself and that you were horrified by the events that took place back on January 8th in Tucson, Arizona, where 19 people were shot and six were killed as a lunatic stormed a political event of U.S. Representative Gabrielle Giffords. Lives were taken just like that, destroyed. And it was tragic, and I think our whole nation rightfully mourned over that tragedy. U.S. District Judge John McCarthy Roll was 63. He was a federal judge who had been appointed to the bench by George H.W. Bush in 1991. Gabrielle Zimmerman was a 30-year-old, and uh, uh, Gabriel, I should say, and he was a director of community outreach, and he was engaged to be married. Christina Taylor Green is the one that's perhaps saddened most of us. She was nine. Born in Maryland, ironically, on September 11, 2001. She was featured in a book called Faces of Hope, Babies Born on 9-11. Dorwin Stoddard was 76. He was a pastor, pastor of Mountain Avenue Church of Christ. When the shooting started, he covered up his wife, laid on top of her as the attacker pointed the gun. He took the bullet, and she survived. Dorothy Morris was 76. Phyllis Sheck was 79. Why does this tragedy bother us? Why does what happened in Tucson, Arizona, why does it resonate in our heart and cause us grief? Why do we get upset and have a national mourning every time there's a shooting, a school shooting, a, a shooting like this, a shooting in a workplace? It's because there's something inside of us, something about God's law on our heart that testifies to the fact, to the truth, that human life is special. Human life is to be valued. Human life is to be protected. Human life is not to be disregarded. Human life is not to be carelessly taken. Whether it be a 9-year-old or a 79-year-old, human life is to be treasured. We know that. If someone walks outside this building and goes and and, and, and stomps on a bunch of ants and, and kills those ants and takes the life away from those ants, 
There's no national outcry, obviously. If someone mows down a flower bed full of uh, beautiful flowers and kills those flowers, there's no national outcry because animal life and plant life is not the same as human life. Human life is unique, it is special, and therefore it is to be treated as special. And we need to praise God that in our culture, which is increasingly becoming a a culture of death, that in our culture we still have a culture where people are outraged by shootings like what had happened at Arizona. That there is, to, to a certain degree, still a respect for human life. But we do live in a culture that does not believe that all human life is sacred. And that all human life is special. And that all human life is to be protected. Many of those who were so morally outraged by the Tucson shooting turn a blind eye to a much more egregious disregard for human life that happens daily. You see, there's a, there's a segment, there's a people group, there's, there's a, there is a people in our society, they're the weakest group of humans in our society, a group of people who have been labeled as less than human who do not have the benefit of grabbing the attention of the public eye, who cannot speak for themselves, who are considered property, property to be discarded if need be. A group of people whose rights have been trampled, a group of people who are being systematically killed day in and day out. And 150 years ago, had I read that last paragraph, you would have said I would have been talking about African Americans enslaved in our culture. Because all of those same things applied to them. But obviously you know what I'm talking about today. I speak, of course, about the children in the wombs of American women across this nation that are still being killed at a rate of 3,500 a day. And as I mentioned last year in my Sanctity of Life sermon last year, that's like a 9-11 happening every day in America. And if we were, we were outraged by the Tucson shooting Think back to 2011, 2001, September 11th, and remember the moral outrage on that day. And compare it to the lack of any sort of outcry for these 3,500 that die every day. There's no, out, there's no national outcry for them. There's no vigil being televised for them. There's no 24-7 news coverage. In large part, our society is numb to it. So every year... Churches across America, either on this Sunday, some of them did it last Sunday, but the Sundays around the anniversary of Roe v. Wade observe Sanctity of Life Sunday. So that's what today is. And, uh, you know, every year that I prepare this sermon, I find it particularly difficult. And I think part of the reason I find it particularly difficult is because this is such a difficult topic in our society to talk about. And there are some, inevitably, in a room this size, there are some, maybe many, who have been touched by the abortion issue in more ways than one. And so it's a very deeply personal, painful thing to talk about. But sanctity of life is to be talked about. It is to be defended. Yesterday was the 38th anniversary of Roe v. Wade. And you know what? There have been some positive trends in the abortion debate in America. And, and I want to make sure, as Deemer mentioned in his prayer, it is more than just about abortion. But specifically on the abortion front, there have been some victories. There's been some legal victories over the past few years. There's uh, more importantly been a tremendous shift in the court of public opinion. And this is, this is really huge. And if you don't understand how huge this is, you can go look up the statistics for yourself. But 10 years ago, well over a majority of Americans were pro-choice. They believed in the right to take a baby's life, if you want to call that a right, in the womb. And then uh, a minority was pro-life. But just recently, the most recent statistics, that has totally flipped. 51% of Americans are now pro-life with only 43% pro-choice. And those are the labels that each side of the debate have chosen for themselves. 51% pro-life, 43% pro-choice. So there seems to be some shifting happening in, in our cultural conscience about the issue of abortion. And more importantly, the number of abortions have gone down. Yet there's still a lot of work to do because with all those statistics, you still read statistics like what came out this week. In New York City, the most recent statistics are that 40% of all pregnancies in New York City are aborted. 
That is an alarming, alarming statistic. The tide is turning, but my friends, I want to challenge us that if we don't get truth, foundational truth right regarding abortion, it's all for naught. There's, there's no need. We can win the, the, the public opinion battle, but you know what? A good PR firm can win the public opinion battle. Um, we can win some of the legal battles, the social political arguments. We can convince people that some of the laws are, are misdirected as they are. We can win the philosophical argument about when personhood begins. Those arguments can be won. And all of those arguments can be won apart from Scripture. But my challenge to us this morning is that we have to win the moral argument. And the moral argument must be founded on the Bible. We have to ask ourselves this question, why is abortion wrong? And to answer that question, we have to go to God's Word. We have to get that question right or we don't get the debate right. We have to get that question right or it's, or it's all for naught. Let me give you an illustration. The illustration of that would be the issue of slavery 150 years ago. There were many that were morally outraged about this, and, and, and because of that, the public opinion began to shift, and slavery was eventually outlawed. But the foundational truths of the same passage of Scripture that Deemer read, that's the same passage of Scripture to point out why slavery is wrong. That's the same passage of Scripture to point out why abortion is wrong. It's the same foundational truth. And the problem is we dealt with slavery, we got rid of slavery after bloodbath in this nation, but the moral argument wasn't settled, and therefore racism continued rampant and still is a problem today. And so you have to deal with the foundational problems. So that's why, just to help kids understand, especially on a Sunday with such a difficult topic, you know, kids, how many of you like Legos in here? You do? Okay, I know some of you do. My son has somehow discovered a Lego social networking site, something, and they're on there trading Lego pictures all the time. Anyway, and so if I were to build a Lego tower out of Legos like this, and I were to build it straight up, and uh, how high do you think I'd be able to get that before it would, well, there's your answer, before it would tip over. Sorry about that. Not, not very high, right? Because... It's, it's just weak at the bottom, all right? I can stack a bunch of things on top of that, but I need a solid foundation. I need a piece like, probably like this. Okay, if I get a piece like this, then I can, you know, have a foundation. I can wiggle around all I need, and it stands strong. And so what I'm going to be talking about today is foundation. What's the foundation of our argument? I can spend some time as I did, did some of it last year, I could spend some time dealing with the scientific medical questions. And, and, and I believe that there is ample evidence to support the fact that life begins at conception. Matter of fact, every biology book you read says life begins at conception. I could spend some time on the philosophical argument and talk about the fact that the size of the person, does it need to be clipped? All right, sorry. There we go. All right. I see the guy there. There, there are some that get very um, distracted by my constant playing with the mic. So, all right. Now I'm distracted. But we can deal with the philosophical. We can deal with the, the scientific, the medical. We can talk about the political issues all we want. But we have to get to the foundational Issue. What is a solid foundation for life? Why is human life valuable? Why is human life valuable? Human life is valuable because Genesis 1.26 says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heaven, and over the livestock of all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. That is our foundation. That is the foundational truth upon which we have to build our argument. Why has our society lost its regard for human life? Why is it a culture of death? Because it has abandoned the foundation. It has cast off foundational truth 
and called it a supernatural myth. And these words that God speaks to us here, these words inspired by the Holy Spirit, written down by Moses, in these words that God established, he establishes man's value. In these words inspired by God, inerrant, true, historical words, God establishes the reason human life is to be valued. And the problem is, as the Bible has become under attack, you can, you can just follow a parallel. As the Bible has become under attack, and as, as in the late 1800s, when people began to say, well, this is just all myth, and began to question the truth of Scripture, when that began to happen, you began to see an eroding of a value for life at the exact same time. And it parallels. And so the problem today is that even within the church, there are some, there are many, who attack passages of Scripture like this and say, well, that's not really what happened. That's just sort of an analogy or a myth or something. Friends, the inerrancy of Scripture is a life issue. Because if we reject Genesis 1.26, if we reject this passage of Scripture, we reject any foundation for even going out there and standing up and saying life is valuable. Because we have no foundation apart from this. Is that my phone? Yeah, just ignore it. Who do I know that's not here? Wow. Distractions are working overtime this morning. So society has cast off foundational truth and called it a supernatural myth, and it has placed its hope in a foolish lie and called it natural law. The devaluation of life can be directly linked to the broad acceptance of secular materialistic naturalism expressed most vividly and most completely in Darwinian evolution. There is no God. There is nothing supernatural. There's only what we can see. There's only what we can touch. There's only the material. That's the only reality. And the laws of the universe are reduced to some sort of mechanical laws. And that's what we've replaced Scripture with. The Darwinist would say that human life is no different from any other life. Human life is no different from any other life. And that humanity is simply the result of undirected forces of evolution over billions of years. The Darwinian would assert that we all came into existence through blind physical processes and random chance. At best, humans are a cosmic accident. If that be the case... If one holds to this thoroughly materialistic worldview, then how can he or she say that anything has value and that anyone has a right to life? So society at large has exchanged the truth for a lie. And most secularists who deny Scripture accounts of creation, okay, most secularists who still deny scriptural accounts of creation still presuppose, for some reason, that human life is valuable. That it's dignified and it needs protection. That's why there was an outrage over Tucson. But we're terribly, they're terribly inconsistent about it, and they don't have any basis to place that foundation upon. There's no basis, there's no foundation. The secularist is left picking and choosing when life is to be valued and when it's not, who is to be valued and who is not. The secularist becomes a hypocrite and unable to defend why he or she is outraged at the shooting in Tucson, yet indifferent about human life being eliminated, more human life being eliminated in one day in one clinic in America than what happened in Tucson. Most who embrace Darwinian dogma don't even really believe it to the full degree that it demands. Think about it. If we're all just, if we're just part of evolution and every other thing out there is just part of the evolutionary process, What right do we have to say that we're any more valuable than those ants I spoke of earlier? What right do we have to say that human life is more valuable than those? Those ants are just a lower form of evolution, so we have no right to go step on them. Or we do have a right to step on them, and we have a right to eliminate any life, including human life. I was at, um, you guys knew I grew up in Ecuador, and one of a very life-changing experience for me was to go to the Galapagos Islands in Ecuador, where Charles Darwin wrote his theory of evolution. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. Has anyone been to the Galapagos? No. Okay. If you ever get a chance, go. It's absolutely stunning. 
It's beautiful. I mean, you talk about creation just shouting God. It does at the Galapagos Islands. And there at the islands, they've done such a good job of maintaining the natural, pristine um, uh, look of the islands or, or keep, keeping it natural that the animals aren't really afraid of people because it hasn't been, people haven't come and really settled the islands. There's only one island where people are allowed to live and all the other ones are just remain natural. But they go on, they take you on tours, but the animals won't, won't run from you. I mean, you have to be really be careful. You can step on a big iguana or uh, the, the, the sea lions are just coming right up to you. Now, you're not allowed to touch any of the animals. You're not allowed to interfere with them in any sort of way. And they take that to the extreme. For example, our class saw um, some baby turtles that had hatched. Have you ever seen the little sea turtles and trying to make their way to the ocean? And they hatch and they kind of pop up out of the sand and they start wiggling down to the ocean. And, well, if you've watched any of the biology shows, you know that not all of them make it to the ocean. Very few of them do because some of them, well, they just die. They just don't make it. They get lost. But a lot of them die because there's these birds swooping around just waiting for those little guys to come out. And they start swooping down you know, taking these guys out. Well, the biology, our biology class was watching this happen, and there's one little guy left, and he's just straggling out there, and there's one bird left, and he's just circling around, and all the girls in the class are going, oh, oh, let's go, let's go, let's go save him, let's go save him. And no, the, our guide wouldn't let us. He said, no, you have to let nature do what nature does. And sure enough, well, the bird had lunch. And I remember another time on that trip, our, our guide was a Belgian guy. We called him E.T. because we couldn't pronounce his name. He spoke several languages, and he was a, he was a thoroughly a Darwin, Darwinian evolutionist. He believed in it with all his might. And um, we were looking at some sea lions, and there was a sea lion over to the right here, and the, its mother was over here. And we were literally as close as I am to these chairs, to these sea lions. And this one over here was a baby, and it was just, you could tell it was sick. It was weak. It was about to die. And... Um, so we asked E.T., we said, what's going to happen to this one? He said, well, it looks like it's going to die. And we said, can't you guys take it you know, to one of the islands and nurse it back to health and then re-release it to the wild? He says, no, 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 no. We have to let evolution run its course. It has to get rid of the weak so the strong can be stronger. And I said, okay. I didn't say this. One of the other class members said, well, wait a second here. What, why do we have hospitals then? Why do we have doctors and hospitals and all that? And he said this, you're right. We shouldn't have those things. We should let the weak die off so the human race would be stronger. Those were his words. And we were shocked. Because he is an honest evolutionist. Because most other evolutionists are dishonest. Because if you really believe what Darwin taught, then yes, Get rid of every hospital. Get rid of the doctors and let the species just run its course. The weak will die. The strong will get stronger. It was Hitler's philosophy, by the way, firmly based on Darwinian evolution. That was Hitler's foundation. That was my friend E.T.'s foundation. It's a sandy foundation of humanistic, materialistic, Darwinian thought. And it's more dangerous than we could ever imagine. And if taken to its full implications, it actually advocates the destruction of life. Life that is considered weak or considered unneeded. I mentioned Hitler. Do you realize that a lot of Hitler's ethnic cleansing philosophy and practice came out of evolutionary thought? He was heavily influenced by Darwin and others. He... The Nazis believed in the elimination of the unwantables of society, which included the disabled and the elderly. They called them useless eaters. In Germany alone, before the invasion of the other nations, 275,000 German handicapped, insane, and incurably ill people were put to death. Didn't say they let them die, they were put to death. They were eliminated. Elimination of the weak. Elimination of the disabled. Make the race stronger was what they believed. The weaker human beings could be even used by the strong. It was in Nazi concentration camps where barbaric um, different types of experiments went on. They would take children and put them in ice water and see how long it would take them to die. So they could make better suits for their pilots in case any of their pilots got shot down in any of the cold waters of the North Atlantic. 
abused the weak to make the strong stronger. Oh, there were hundreds of things they did. Human experiments, sewing twins together to see if they could create conjoined twins. Putting dye into the eyes and chemicals into the eyes of Jewish children to see if they could turn their eyes blue. And the term itself, the term freedom of choice, was a term invented by a Nazi so, um, Nazi propagandist and physician meant to entice Polish women to have abortions and to use contraceptions. So freedom of choice was a propaganda campaign by the Nazis spread across Poland trying to convince Polish women to eliminate their children. Evangelical pastor and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer was eventually jailed and martyred for his opposition to the Nazi regime, including his opposition of their use of abortion. This is what he said regarding abortion. Destruction of the embryo in the mother's womb is a violation of the right to live which God has bestowed upon the nascent life. To raise the question whether we are here concerned already with a human being is not merely to confuse the issue. It's simply fact. The simple fact is that God certainly intended to create a human being and that this nascent being has been deliberately deprived of its life. And that is nothing but murder. Those type of words in Nazi Germany in the 1940s got you put in jail and got you hung. The weak are at the mercy of the strong. And abortion is simply the outcropping of this humanistic utilitarian thinking. A woman has a right, listen, listen to the arguments. A woman has a right to do with her body whatever she wishes. That is a utilitarian argument. She has a right to do with her body whatever she wishes. Now, DNA scientific evidence has destroyed this argument, by the way, because we know from the moment of conception a unique, never-to-be-replicated DNA sequence is begun. Therefore, what's growing in the woman's womb is not a tissue that belongs to her. It has a separate DNA than she does. Therefore, it is not part of her body. It is a separate human being. Science would confirm that and does confirm that. Forcing women to have unwanted children would create undue financial strain on them and on society. This doesn't sound as barbaric as the Nazis, but it's the same foundation. The Nazis used the weak to help the strong. We don't want to bring unwanted children into this world because it creates undue financial burden on people and on society. So building an Aryan race isn't motivating us, but the almighty dollar is. It's the same arguments. Unwanted children will be a burden. None of those sound as horrific as the Nazis, but it's still a utilitarian view of human life. Life is only valued if we deem it valuable. And that's the opposite of what Genesis says. Genesis says that life is valuable because God created it. God designed it, and it images, human life images God himself. When we have no foundation, we read stories like this. Perhaps you read the story the last couple of weeks of the Australian couple in Victoria, Australia. They have three boys, and they wanted a girl. Um, they lost a girl to miscarriage earlier in their marriage. So they had in vitro fertilization and ended up with twin boys. When they discovered, after the boys were already well past the first trimester, when they discovered that they were boys, they aborted them because they want girls. Now they're seeking to use sex selection technology, which is outlawed in Australia, by the way, to determine the sex of the remaining future embryos. Those they deem that they do not want and that are not female will be discarded. This is what the dad said. We just want a chance to have a baby girl that we don't have. We think it's our right to have a baby girl. Utilitarian. Let's just use children. Let's just use these babies for our purposes. That's the Sandy Foundation. It's the Sandy Foundation of embryonic stem cell research. You were, you were appalled when I said the Nazis took twins and sewed them together. You're appalled when I said the Nazis took children and put them in ice-cold water to see how long it would take them to die. That's just the tip of the iceberg of the experiments they did on children and adults alike. 
Yet, we, majority of Americans, have no problem with taking the weakest of society and using them for medical experiments because it'll help the stronger, right? Maybe we can cure some diseases. Well, maybe the Nazis could figure out a good coat for their pilots to wear when their planes crash in the cold water, too. I don't care what disease you think you can cure with embryonic stem cell research. First of all, scientifically, there are other stem cells that are accessible that don't require the destruction of human life. That is proven fact, ignored by much of the society today, but it's proven. But let's go back anyway. Let's say embryonic stem cell research was the only way to get new stem cells in order to deal with diseases in our culture. It's still not worth it. It's still the strong imposing their will on the weak. For our utilitarian purposes. And this sandy foundation has left us terribly, terribly hypocritical. Terribly inconsistent. Probably most of you read the story this past week of the doctor in Philadelphia. Did you read this? A doctor in Philadelphia whose abortion clinic was shut down. He was a notorious for performing as many late-term abortions as he possibly could. That's what, that, was, that was a quote from the prosecutors. Well, his, his clinic was shut down because, first of all, it was unsafe. There were unlicensed people practicing there. It was unsanitary. They're like cats in the, in, the room, in the operating room and different things like that. Okay, so it was shut down for those reasons. Well, yeah. But here's the other reason it was shut down is the way he did his abortions is that he induced women to give birth to the baby, to a live baby, then he would take scissors and he would kill the live baby after it had been delivered. And that is homicide. So he's been arrested and he's been charged with homicide. He's a fool. Because in our culture, by our laws, if he just stuck the scissors into the mother's womb and done the deed there, it'd be legal. It'd be legal. An eight-inch difference, legal and homicide. How foolish are we that we can read these articles and just say, oh, wow, that's just so horrible, and then ignore that it's going on every day, yet it's protected by law. Life is only valuable when we deem it valuable. How far can this go, you may wonder. Well, did you know that Princeton ethicist Peter Singer, y'all probably heard of Peter Singer. He likes to uh, stir things up out there. I think he likes to have his name in the news. Well, he believes that babies should, be considered, should not be considered persons until they're at least one week old and that parents should have the right to discard a baby any time during that first week, especially in case the child is disabled. He is teaching at Princeton he also says this, the fact that a being is human does not mean we should give the, give the interest of that being preference over the similar interest of other beings. That would be speciesism and wrong for the same reason that racism and sexism are wrong. Pain is equally bad if it's felt by a human or a mouse. So by his own definition, this is, this is the logical progression don't be surprised by this. This is what happens when you take Darwinian thought and take it and you begin to apply it. Have you ever heard of eugenics? Eugenics is the applied science of trying to purify a race. Hitler practiced eugenics, but so did Margaret Sanger. She's the founder of Planned Parenthood and of the pro-choice movement. Eugenics is the applied science, applied, not just theory, applying it. How do we apply these theories and change society and make a better race? That's evolution carried to its ultimate degree. So, Peter Singer, if I were trapped in a wall with a mouse and the rescuers came and they could only get one of us out, he would say the rescuers have no right to choose me over the mouse. That's the logic. The myth of human exceptionalism, this is another professor from Washington, University of Washington. The myth of human exceptionalism is at the root of our environmental destruction and our possible self-destruction. In other words, human life is not as important as our environment. 
Time Magazine quotes abortionist and anthropologist Warren Hearn of the University of Colorado. These are the people teaching our next generations, guys. He says this. He says, humans are an ecotumor and a planetary malignancy that is recklessly devouring its host, the poor earth. How opposite is that to Genesis 1? God says he creates man to have dominion over the earth. In Darwinian foundation, that sandy foundation says man is a plague to the earth. What does it say here? An, um, an eco-tumor. A New York Times editorial said this. We are all of us dogs and barnacles, pigeons and crabgrass. The same in the eyes of nature, equally remarkable and equally dispensable. I want to ask that guy from New York Times, if that's true, why are you upset about Tucson, Arizona? If we're equally dispensable as a barnacle. So scraping the barnacles off the bottom of a boat is just as bad as Tucson, Arizona? There is no logic there. Do you see how blind the world is? We're so blinded by sin. Here's what Peta, Peta's Ingrid Newkirk said. She said, a rat is a pig. A rat is a pig, is a dog, is a boy, is a roach. A rat is a pig, is a dog, is a boy, is a roach. So children are now on the level of a roach. And so I guess in her mind, there's no difference between eating a man or eating a pork chop. Of course, she wouldn't eat any of those. Few people today know what I said earlier that Margaret Sanger, foundation of the founder of pro-choice movement and Planned Parenthood, was an admirer of Dr. Rudin. Dr. Rudin was the man I mentioned earlier who came up with the phrase pro-choice. He came up with the phrase. He was Hitler's a physician for Hitler and a Nazi propagandist. Miss Sanger uh, had a white racist named Lothrop Stoddard on her board of directors. Stoddard was the author of several anti-Semitic and white supremacist books. He's a well-known admirer of Adolf Hitler and a supporter of the Nazis. Sanger herself believed in eugenics, which is what I mentioned earlier. She viewed eugenics, the applied science okay, of biosocial movement, which advocates practices aimed at improving the genetic composition of a population. That's the official definition. She believed it was the next logical step in evolution. Those were her words, not mine. That's the fruit of the sandy foundation that our society is now built upon. The fruit of evolution, that's the fruit of evolution evolving from the field of biology and infecting the area of sociology and everyday life. Do we see now why the foundation is so important? So let me read this passage from Genesis again and bring out a few quick points. Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the, the birds of the air and the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Stop right there. How important do you think it is that we're created in God's image? It says it three times in two verses. Verse 28, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This doesn't mean eco-tumors. This means that man has a responsibility to take care of the earth. Verse 29, and God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seeds that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And so it was. And God saw that everything he had made, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. First of all, we have to understand that humans, human life is designed by God. We are designed by God. God created man. There was nothing before God intervened and created man, breathing life into creation. The, God used, the Bible uses words reserved for artists and craftsmen when it, re, when it refers to God's role in life. Job 10.8 says, Your hands fashioned me and made me. Psalm 139.13 
and following says, You formed me in my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's wombs. womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was in the secret, when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. I heard a cool thing this week. Did you know our skin cells are made up of fibers? I didn't know this. I just found this out. And there's two different types of fibers. At the, at the, at the very basic level, there's a f- fibers that are elastic that allows your skin to, skin to stretch. And there's fibers that are very solid and hard so, that, so, that so it solidifies. So, you, there's no, not, so it can't stretch. And when you have a scar, they're, they're, those fibers are woven together in such a way to where it doesn't have that elasticity. But there are fiber. Our, our, our very being is made up of fibers. So the Bible's very true when it says we were intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Human life is a gift from God. Not only did God initiate and author human life, it was a gift. He gives it to whom he gives it. He takes it from whom he wants to take it. If he wants to give it for 99 days, that is his prerogative. I read on a blog this week, someone put a comment that God is the worst abortionist because 20% of all pregnancies result in a miscarriage. So God is the worst abortionist in history. Well, what this person failed to understand is that God, as the author and creator of life, has that prerogative. We do not. He can do what he wants with life. First Samuel 2.6, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he rises up. Deuteronomy 32.39, see now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. But these two things, that you know, God is the, the, God is the uh, creator and author of life, and that life is a gift from God, these can be said about all living things. The main bedrock and foundation of why human life is valuable is that human life uniquely points toward God. Human life uniquely points toward God. Genesis 1.26, after God's created all the other animals, there's a pause. As you can see the scriptures there, you read it, and then all of a sudden there begins an account of his creation of man. Man is set apart. He's distinct. He's not just one of the animals. We're distinct because we're made in God's image, in his likeness. We are created to shine God, to image God. We are like mirrors to reflect God's glory. And how do we do that? In this passage we see some of them, but it's not exhaustive. There's lots of other ways as well. One of the ways that we reflect God or we image God is that we're relational beings. In verse 27, it says God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. We're created for companionship. We're created for relationship, for community. God is community. The Trinity is perfect community, perfect relationship, perfect union, perfect fellowship. And so we are made to reflect that. Through our relationships on this earth, including our marriage and our family and the church, we are ruling beings as well. We reflect God by being ruling beings. Like I said in verse 26, we're the ones who are told to have dominion over the earth. We're the ones that are told to fill the earth and to subdue it. And we reflect God's glory when we do that well. When we don't take care of the environment, we poorly reflect the image of God. When we do take care of it, we reflect God. Well, we image God well. The earth is for man. Man's dominion over it reflects God's glory. We're also creative beings. We can create things like art, music, sculptures, whatever else. We create Legos. We're cr- that, that image is God. I can't take my dog and give him a box of Legos. He's not going to do anything with it. Well, he might. He will eat them. But my son, I give him a box of Legos, something cool is going to happen. Because we image God. Other animals don't. It's also the reason we can procreate. It says here that God told them to fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and every other living creature that moves. But he also told them to have children, to be fruitful. Genesis 5.3 says, When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. And so as we have children, we're continuing that image of God. We have children in our image. We're created in God's image, and it's supposed to continue. And as we fill the earth, God's image, God's glory is to shine. 
We see from Scripture that we image God in other ways. We're moral beings. We're spiritual beings. We're intellectual beings. That can't, it's not true of, the, of all the other life on earth. We uniquely were created to shine forth for the glory of God. Man is designed to glorify God. And a destruction of human life is a defacing of God's glory. Even after the fall, we are to image God. Even after sin entered the world, we are to image God. Albeit we cannot do it perfectly as it was done before the fall. And man, the creation of human life, was God's crowning achievement. Verse 31. And God saw what he made, and behold, it was what? Good? Very good. After he created everything else, he said, it's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. He gets to man, finishes the job. Very good. Because now he has a unique form of life called man that has been created in his image to shine forth his glory in all the earth. The truth is, though, we cannot image God the way we're designed to. We should not be surprised that society stands on the foundation of a lie. Because we, like every single human being, we left our father. We chose another father, a father of lies. And we've imaged him much better than we imaged our true father. We, by our own unrighteousness, suppress the truth. Why is this debate so difficult? Because we suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to us because God has shown it to us. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So we are all without excuse. For although we knew God, we did not honor Him as God and give thanks to Him, but we became futile in our thinking, and our foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise with theories of origins that that bring glory to nature, we became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave us up to the lust of our hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of our bodies, and to the killing of our unborn babies. Because we exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. The only solution for our dilemma was if God would somehow, somehow send one, one who would make it all right, one who would turn the world right side up again. By standing in our place and being the image bearer that we failed to be. The image bearer that we can't be because of our sin. One who would rightly image the Father, perfectly image the Father, give glory to the Father. One who at the same time could restore us by granting us forgiveness. By giving us something, by imputing into us, onto us, His righteousness, His goodness, His perfect imaging of the Father. What great hope. That's the solution. It was what people looked forward to before the cross, and it's what we look back to after the cross. God did just this. He sent Jesus, precious Jesus, restorer of the value of human life. Not God's valuing of it. God's always valued life. Jesus restores our value of human life. The key to winning the debate about the sanctity of life in America is, therefore, the gospel. It all comes down to that. The gospel. It all comes down to what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And people being recreated, new creations, created once again. People who are transformed by Jesus, transformed by the gospel. Only then will, they, will we all begin to image God the way we're supposed to. Only then will we image God because the Bible says that God is the defender of the weak. The only way this nation can become a defender of the weak is through the gospel because we don't defend the weak on our own. Only God can give us the strength to defend the weak. And so the gospel is essential to winning this debate. Praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. That's the gospel. And one day, Jesus will return and he will restore everything. He'll make all things new. Restore heaven and earth to the way it was in Genesis 1, 26 through 31. But until that day, it is the responsibility of Christians across this nation to image God by defending the weak, 
standing up for life because human life is valuable. Human life is life that reflects the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Genesis one twenty six and the rejection of Genesis one twenty six and the verses that follow that is at the root of every human problem, as Deemer said earlier. Racism still exists in this nation because people don't believe Genesis one twenty six. Child abuse exists in this world because people don't believe Genesis one twenty six. Spousal abuse exists in this country because people don't believe Genesis one twenty six. Turning a blind eye to the poor and the infirmed in the most desperate places of this world. That's a result of people ignoring Genesis one twenty six. Yelling at our kids just because they're on our nerves is a result of Genesis one twenty six, us not believing in it. So God, we want to value life. God, when we think about our wives and our children and we think about our neighbors, our friends in this church, Lord, help us to see these are tremendously valuable treasures created in the image of God. They are to be loved. They are to be cared for. They are to be defended. And God, don't let us forget to defend those that we can't see. God, I pray that you'd open our eyes to the abortion debate in a way that brings us to a new level of compassion because, God, failure to minister to the women who have gone through abortion and are struggling with the results of that is also ignoring Genesis 1.26. So, God, help us to be consistent. Help us to stand up for elderly life as well. Help us stand up for disabled life. Because life is valuable. Life is a treasure. Life is a gift. But most importantly, human life is a mirror meant to image you, to shine your glory across creation. We pray all these things we ask, Lord, now that you be with us in this closing time. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand, if you would, as Mark leads us in a closing song. Let's sing Mighty to Save. I love where Pastor Steve ended that sermon by talking about the gospel and it was just it's just good for my soul um because it's it's discouraging it's discouraging um but to end um with god's grace is so good and to end with a solution and whether there is a solution there is a remedy um to the problem is is good is good to know um and i think that's that's where we need to go as we see the problem and and we need to look to Jesus. We need to look to God uh, for the solution. Because he's the one who has all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Everyone needs compassion, love that's never failing. Let mercy fall on me. Everyone needs forgiveness, the kindness of a Savior, the hope of nations.
Savior, He can move the mountains. My God is mighty to save. He is mighty to save forever. Author of salvation, He rose and conquered the grave. Jesus conquered the grave So take me as you find me All my fears and failures my life again I give my life to follow everything I believe in now I surrender let's declare this our Savior He can move the mountains my God is mighty to save, yes, He is mighty to save forever. Author of salvation, He rose and conquered the grave. Jesus conquered the grave. Shine your light and let the whole world see. We're singing for the glory of the risen King. Jesus, shine your light and let the whole world see. We're singing for the glory of the risen King. The Savior, He can move the mountains. My God is mighty to save. He is mighty to save forever, author of salvation. He rose and conquered the grave. Yes, Jesus conquered the grave. Amen. It's a conqueror of death. Death, where is your sting? God is a God of life. Amen. Thank you guys for leading us in worship. Appreciate that. Uh, you may be seated. Uh, just a couple of things I want to bring to your attention uh, in, in our bulletin. Um, uh, first of all, uh, our community groups are going to be launching really soon, the first week of February, and we're already having some folks sign up for those two groups. Thanks for those who responded to my email uh, a few days ago on that. We've, we're offering two groups during the week. Um, one is going to be um, uh, led by me and hosted at my house uh, called What's the Difference? And it is uh, about men and women. And it is about God's design for men and women. Um, and it's about how uh, men and women biblically are supposed to relate to one another uh, in the church, in the home, in general. Uh, Steve was talking about how, how God has created man and woman and his image. And we are to image God and truths about God uh, in our relationships with one another and how men and women interact with one another. And so that's going to be a great study, and I'm looking forward to that. And it's going to be on Wednesdays uh, at my house, and there's information in the sign-up sheet in the back. Steve is going to uh, be leading uh, a group. Uh, called ba- uh, The name of the study is called Battling Unbelief. That's going to be at Ida and Gabe Bruzy's house, which is like just like a few hundred yards, I guess, in that direction, uh, real close to here. Uh, but Battling Unbelief is actually... One of it's probably the best small group study that I've ever been a part of, and so I would highly recommend uh, for you to be a part of that group if you haven't signed up for any group. Uh, it's going to help you to kill sin in your life and get closer to God, and, and I believe you can really experience some victories in your own life if you apply the principles in that study. It's called Battling Unbelief, and that, it's Tuesdays that you guys are going to be? Yeah, Tuesday nights at 6.30, and more information about that is out in the back table of those sign-up sheets. So if you haven't signed up for a small group, please do that after the service. Uh, we're going to be ordering materials for these really soon in the next couple of days. So um, 
We'll also need to, uh, to get money from you for that soon to help us with that. But you don't need to have your money today to sign up. Just go ahead and sign up. Uh, also, our fellowship meal. We're starting our monthly fellowship meals again. Um, we had uh, fun with that uh, last year. We're going to be starting that up again. And our first meal is next week, actually, next Sunday. And the, the theme is Sunday brunch. So I'm really looking forward to your pancakes or your hash brown casseroles or your whatever you do for lunch. I'm putting in my order right now for you guys. So, uh, lunch, brunch, whatever. Sunday brunch. Uh, so that's next week. And uh, also, uh, for a few weeks now, I've been uh, talking about uh, Bobby McCurry's uh, Super Bowl outreach. He's going to be taking a team down to uh, the Super Bowl in just a couple of weeks to Dallas to preach the gospel and share Christ with all the Well, maybe not all the people, but hopefully a lot of those people, Bobby, that'll be (laughs) descending upon Dallas for the Super Bowl. And I've been talking to you about a need uh, to to get money for a a big passenger van so he can take his team down there. Well, uh, uh, just in case you're wondering how that's going, uh, God did not provide the money for the van. He provided the van. And uh, another church has come through to provide a van uh, for them, so we praise God for that. There's still ways, though, that you can help out. They still do need some gas money to get down there. Uh, and some help with, uh, with insurance for the van as well. But we got the big piece of the puzzle. The van is there, so we praise God uh, for that. And uh, also, uh, it, uh, near the bottom of your bulletin, there's some information about a marriage retreat that's coming up really, really soon. So if you are interested, uh, uh, please uh, uh, call Anchor Church. There's a number there for Anchor Church on your bulletin. Uh, so get with them as ASAP if you need some information about that and you want to sign up. Uh, finally, uh, one of the ministries that we're partnering with is Life Song for Orphans. And if you're new here, you may not have heard about them uh, or what they're all about or, or ways that you can help them out. And Steve Walsman actually is, uh, is he here? Where's he at? Oh, you're right there. He's ready, he's ready to go. He's, uh, he's kind of our, our point person, our liaison between us and Life Song. And, and he's going to share with you uh, a little bit about them. So... Um Many, if not all of you, know that we're involved with LifeSong. Uh, they're an adoption ministry that uh, goes into countries throughout our world. And, um, excuse me, they're not an adoption ministry. They're more of an orphan care ministry. Uh, I have adoption on the mind. Um, but they, they're the teammates that are involved at LifeSong, Keith and Kay Knapp, they went to Liberia last Thanksgiving a couple of months ago. Um, and they actually had a groundbreaking for a school at the new Marshall um, campus. There's two campuses, uh, orphanages over there. The cool thing about that, uh, to, to share a little personal note, is um, Addie's Hope, which is the adoption agency that we were adopting through, uh, when the orphanage was built, which is actually built uh, through the finances of, a, of an adopting couple, they raised the money, they went over there, they bought the stuff, they shipped the a um, big container over there on one of those big ships that you see um, and they built the orphanage and the goal was to at some point in time have a school there right around that area are tons of children and there's a road that they actually have to walk down this dirt road to a to a um, asphalt road and there's been problems where children have been hit and um, they, they've died and so they the the villages around that area won't send their kids. Um, therefore, they're not being schooled. Therefore, they stay in poverty and all the things along those lines. Well, they just, when Keith and Kay were over there, they did a groundbreaking for a school at the Marshall uh, campus. So that is huge. Uh, it's a big thing for Abby and I because that's one of the things that we wanted to do uh, when we are, were involved in the, in the adoption uh, ministry of three children who actually that adoption fell through for us. Um, so that's, that's a huge praise. Um, the other thing is our adoption fund for Harbins is around $3,000 right now. So um, those families within our church, and, and if we as Harbins deem uh, another family outside of our church, uh, we can give that money. We want it to be $5,000, but um, we're, we're getting there, more than halfway there. Um, I did ask Keith and Kay about what are our opportunities to go over there? One of the things they said was um, there's no reason for us to go over there and do a work project because they got plenty of good laborers. Uh, I saw them. I mean, they were digging wells. (laughs) The well for the orphanage in Marshall, they were down there with a hammer and a pick um, like that long or so hammering away at the rock. 
Um, that's how hard a workers they are when I was over there back in, in 2008. So we don't need um, workers, but we need medical people to go over there and check out the children in both of the homes, and they can do a lot of other people. So if anyone feels led, um, come talk to me. It's not a Harbin's thing per se, but it, it may be. Um, and we'll go from there. And the other thing is there's about three or four families uh, that have adopted children still in the Marshall facility, and I would ask you all to pray for them. They have been in this process for three-plus years. Adoptions were shut down in uh, January of 08. Um, this is now three years later. They probably have been involved in the process four or five years. Um, our children are back home with their dad and stepmom, but there are probably a total of eight or so children that are still in the orphanage at Marshall that have have parents here that are trying to fight the corrupted government system of Liberia to be able to bring their children home. So please be praying for those. If you want names and, and names of children, I'd be more than happy to get those for you. Um, but as we think about Life Song in Liberia, please, please uh, continue to keep them on your mind. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. All right. Well, um, I. Thank you for coming to worship with us today, and um, younger kids are dismissed to get ready for Rewind, and, yeah, immediately, and, <laughs> and um, uh, everybody else, Bible study with me down in the fellowship hall, so God bless you, go in peace.